Craig, on the other hand, like is a, is a mysterious figure who's connected to a variety <laughs> of properties with, as I said, like various dystopian sounding names to greater or lesser degrees. Like- a podcast about the contemporary American intellectual scene. On today's episode, I'm talking to Randy Lewis and Craig Campbell, who are colleagues of mine in my day job, and we are talking about the 800-pound gorilla, or maybe I should say the 338 million cubic feet gorilla, on the Austin city scene, which is Giga Austin, Tesla's newest mega factory, and for my money, the most resonant symbol of what we locals call New Austin. So if you live in Austin, as I have for the past 17 years, that phrase is pretty self-explanatory. Over the past few decades, the population of Austin has exploded, going from about 340,000 in 1980 to just shy of a million today, and that's actually a little bit of an understatement. That's just Austin proper rather than the whole metro area, which is a few million. Um, And with that growth has come a comparably dramatic shift in the city's culture, What was once a relatively low-key college town with a great music scene and a strong hippie vibe has become a tech yuppie wonderland for good and ill. Austin used to be weird and didn't have to think or talk about it. Then there was a period when it was visibly losing its weirdness, and we would say, keep Austin weird, and that meant something meaningful. And now no one even says that anymore. We're dynamic and fascinating and great in many ways, but we are not weird, and we're even less weird every day. The building of Tesla's Gigafactory, which is white and gleaming and vast and futuristic, is about as heavy-handed a symbol of that change as you can get. Construction began in the summer of 2020. The factory started producing cars in late 2021, and it had its official launch party, uh, which I think was called the Giga Texas Rodeo, uh, which had been delayed because of COVID, was in April of 2022, last year. And the Gigafactory is not, in a sense, just the Gigafactory. It's the centerpiece and symbol of Elon Musk's whole empire, much of which has either relocated to or expanded into the Austin area over the past few years. So the Boring Company, which is his tunnel-building endeavor, is now headquartered in Pflugerville, outside the city. Neuralink, which I'm pretty sure is his mind-control company, is building a big space in Del Valley. SpaceX is building a facility in Bastrop, and Tesla already has plans in the works to expand the Gigafactory, which at present has a floor area of about 10 million square feet by another million or so square feet. So what does all this mean for Austin, other than to say it's new Austin versus old Austin? So to help answer that question, uh, I have Randy and Craig. Randy's chair of the American Studies Department at UT Austin and the author of many books, many of them on film. He's also the founder and creative spirit behind the End of Austin Project, Uh, which is an online site dedicated to this change in Austin. Craig Campbell is an associate professor of anthropology at UT. He's a scholar of visual culture in the Soviet Union, among other things. And he is one of the guiding spirits of the dystopian named Bureau of Experimental Ethnography. And Randy and Craig are here in particular because they're also collaborators on a new project that is focused on the Tesla Gigafactories in Austin and in Germany. So Randy and Craig, welcome to the podcast. All right, thanks. Let me start... With just, uh, I mean, we'll get into all of these things and more, but but can you guys just explain the origins of your Gigafactory project, not Elon Musk's, but yours, and how it came about, what its goal is, and kind of where you are in the process? Sure. Thank you. That was a great intro in, in terms of Austin and the changes and where Tesla fits in. And this project, I mean, as an American Studies scholar, I'm just looking around for what is really happening in the culture, what are the big changes, and we have this sort of 800-pound gorilla of Tesla in our backyard, and Craig and I have been out there a couple times to the facility, and it's just sort of mind-boggling how big and how fast it's all happening. So, I mean, my last book was on surveillance technology and the kind of human impact of it, and so I think for this project, I'm coming at it with the thought of, like, what's the human impact of Elon Musk? Tesla, his other companies on Austin. I've obviously had a long-standing interest in the changes in the cultural landscape of Austin. But what does it mean to have the world's, you know, one time anyway, the world's richest man, the world's largest factory, the world's most valuable car company, all right here in what was, as you described in the intro, a pretty sleepy college and government town 30 years ago. Now it's the center of something pretty powerful. That's great. And actually, I, I want to circle around a few of those things. I, I remember early on in, in this project, Randy, you were talking about my neighbor, Elon, I think is, is <laughs> how you framed it, right? Which I, I loved that. And that resonated with me in a lot of ways, partly because 
I've been really focusing on a couple of projects that came about because of the pandemic and being tethered more tightly to Austin than normally I would be. I'd normally be in Siberia doing my research in, in, in the Russian Federation. So because of the pandemic, because of the war now, I'm even more tightly tethered to Austin than I was before because my mode of research is primarily field work, is going to place, meeting people, being in spaces, walking around, exploring, thinking along with that. So, you know, I think when we first started realizing we had some shared fascinations here around Elon Musk and specifically Tesla, different sorts of connections were starting to light up. And so specifically to your question, how did this get started or, or where did it come from? Where did our Tesla come from, not Elon's? That was out of those reflections on being in Austin. What's Austin like? What the heck is this thing that's happening? And it's happening during COVID, which has its own particular temporality, which is super interesting. And then there's a, a third member of, of our, our little collective, which is uh, Florian Granmuller, Grunmuller, sorry, Florian, um, <laughs> who is a, a former student of mine from Germany, did his MA in Germany. Um, and we realized there's actually a really f sort of fascinating connection to think about Tesla in, in connection to the, the Giga Berlin and Giga Austin. So there's a lot more history than that, but you know, I think that gives you a little bit of a summary of some of the places we've, we've come from. Yeah, you guys talk about this as like a project. And I'm curious what that means. For me, it means I'm going to write a book on something, you know, because that's my mode. For you guys, I'm going to tell you what I think it means, and then you can kind of correct that or nuance it, is that you have something you recognize as like an area of kind of academic and intellectual interest that you want to explore, and there's a little bit of indeterminacy about what that means. So it means some period of like discovery, exploration, reading, I mean, in this case, visiting, you know, a physical site, and then what will come out of that will kind of coalesce, and it will be academic articles, it might be a book, it might be, Randy, I know you've made films, it might be, it might be a short film, I know, Craig, you do a lot of stuff online, so it could be like an online. And then both of you are kind of interested in public scholarship, so academic work that's not going through this sort of traditional peer-reviewed means but is kind of disseminating out through all of these other mechanisms. Help me understand kind of both like what is a project in your minds. People in the world, I mean, sometimes they do, but they don't like have a project, right? And then what does that mean kind of looking forward to to how you guys, what will how your, your project on the Tesla Gigafactory will actually manifest in the world in sort of some concrete terms. Yeah, I don't want to put Craig too much on the spot, but I feel like he's one of the best people on campus for thinking in this like new paradigm of how scholars can approach issues that goes beyond, like this is going to be a journal article or this is going to be a book. Some of the work we're doing here may end up in that form, but uh, one of the things I've really admire about Craig is the way he approaches things, sometimes almost like a conceptual artist, sometimes, well, you know, maybe sort of an activist bent. There's always this like kind of capacious encounter with the the thing that takes some time. So there's this process that we're going through. And I've I've done many projects with Craig over the last 13 years. And I've learned sometimes you you describe it very beautifully, I think. And sometimes we're still struggling to nail it down more than is possible at the at the moment. But I think that the fruits of this is a kind of organic process that happens is something really that's the most beautiful part of being a scholar on campus right now for me is doing this kind of work with, with people like Craig. So, Thanks, Randy. That's, that's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely feel the same way. Yeah. We're like, what's this going to look like? I'm really keyed into having done a lot of collaborative work over the years, but doing collaborative work as independent scholars means both sort of figuring out what our collective output might be, keeping track of the kind of relationships that we have and fostering that. But then also anticipating that we're kind of doing our own projects as well and, and really trying to let there be room for that. So, you know, I think of it kind of as a constellation, right? We've seen this thing. We're now sort of circling it and trying to sort of figure it out. But you can't look it in the eye. You've got to sort of like keep it on the <laughs> peripheral vision. So, yeah. So I think that that's, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. So whether it's going to be a, a set of little short films, movies, web collected edition, you know, published articles or, or you know, independently authored Netflix books. documentary, yeah. obviously. Yeah, Netflix has come knocking, but we're like, you know, we're not ready yet. I want to say <laughs> as a side note, because part of what I do just in my, just sort of temperamentally is I Google stalk people and I and I try and kind of like get my sort of 30-second understanding who who they are. And that's relatively easy for Randy, 
who has a sort of, you know, you, you go out into the world. I mean, you, you have a sprawling web presence, but at least your bio on like the liberal arts faculty page is pretty straightforward. Craig, on the other hand, like is a, is a mysterious figure who's connected to a variety <laughs> of properties with, as I said, like various dystopian sounding names to greater or lesser degree. There's like Metafactory. There's the Bureau of Experimental Ethnography. You just mentioned another one. And, you know, before I met you, not that you don't give off like a solid hipster vibe, but before I met you, I was imagining like like a more sort of forbidding, possibly like some flavors from like Berlin. Maybe there's a little New York in there. I mean, maybe there's like some undefinable Eastern European influences as well. Anyway, you're 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 much more approachable in person than I imagined you from your sort of sprawling, mysterious, dystopian web presence. Side note. But if you're interested in what I mean, listener, just go find go start at like Craig's faculty page and then just go to kind of kind of vibe out into the into the the metafactory universe. Let me bring this back to like Austin and and Elon Musk and Tesla and this big gigafactory. I was researching this a little bit before we got here, thinking that this was a process that started in like 2016, 2017 or something like that. I think he announced it in like July of 2020. And that speed is fascinating. But I'm curious for both of you, like, what does it mean at the most global sense? I mean, what does this mean for you guys? Craig was talking about how the three players in this research project, you know, we have different interests. And I think that Craig has done some other projects on some of the detention facilities, including a project called Carceral Edgelands, that looks at kind of the atmosphere around a detention facility in Hutto and other places. And I think that may inspire some of the work for him on the Gigafactory, you know, like what's going on in the communities right around there. We were driving on the weekend through the back roads that Craig has kind of mapped out around and even getting out and going down to the to the river and trying to figure out what well, could you kayak around the Gigafactory? What would we learn? What could we see? Florian, our other researchers, more kind of on the labor side of things and Worker Defense Fund and other groups have reported some real labor issues and violations with the incredibly fast construction, people not getting paid, different kinds of safety issues. And then I'm really coming at it from the kind of what you might think of as the cultural spillover. It's like Elon is in this extraordinary moment. He's in his like Elvis Presley moment, but it may be the late Elvis. <laughs> I was going to say late, late Elvis moment, maybe not early Elvis moment. Yeah. You know, he's kind of like a little, He's he wanted to be Tony Stark, Iron Man, you know, by Robert Downey Jr. But there's elements of Steve Jobs. There's elements of Howard Hughes, elements problematically of Henry Ford. And um, there's even a little bit of George Soros maybe in the mix when, you know, his relationship to the facts sometimes is a little bit creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fair amount or, of Trump, too. And there's Trump in the mix, too. Yeah, he's gotten very Trumpy in his his desire to troll. Yep. And, like, it's like being the richest person in the world doesn't interest him, you know, because he grew up in a family that, you know, owned an emerald mine, which he claims that they didn't because <laughs> he's self-made. So, yeah, yeah, great. I'm deep into that that thread, Randy, but that's not quite what your question was. Well, so. yeah, I mean, I, and I do want to spend some time on Elon because he is a fascinating figure. And, and I think like Trump kind of exerts a gravitational force on yeah. any conversation you're having. And I, I think it'd be silly to not talk about him some and all of the meanings. But I, I do want to kick that down the road a little bit because I think I want to think about Tesla as a kind of entity and, right, the, right, and right. the shift in Austin. And well, I'm curious, I mean, Randy mentioned you know, you're interested in the kind of like physical borderlands of different kinds of institutions and how they impact. Or So is that part of what's interesting to you about the Gigafactory? And I, I guess in answer to that, like, describe it to me. Like, I, I've seen pictures of it, but I haven't been there yet. So right. I don't actually know what it's like to, like, drive down there and be around there and how close you can get and what what the part of Austin that it's adjacent to is like and all of those yeah, yeah, things. Yeah, Well, so it's in Del Valley, right? Yeah. So this is an unincorporated area. I'm still trying to sort of tease this out. Like, what what is its relationship to Austin itself? It seems to me the primary sort of political entity there is the Del Valle School District. It's also a boundary zone that's not really, it's ill-defined. Okay. And, I mean, I think that's actually a quote from the city's website or something like that. (laughs) We are a boundary zone that is ill-defined, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, Austin as a city will, will like, sort of annex parts as it grows, right? And and so this has, like, particular sort of urban geography histories and the ways of understanding and and sort of exploring that. And Austin Bergstrom, which is just on the south side of the Colorado River from Giga, Texas, let's call it Giga, Texas, which is one of the 
There's two or three different ways of calling it, but Giga Texas, I think, is useful. Austin Bergstrom, which is just on the south side there, sandwiched between Austin Bergstrom Airport and the river is part of Del Valle, some of which falls into Austin, Texas, some of which is just outside of, of Austin city limits. Trademarked, right? <laughs> it makes it very hard to, to actually do research on Austin city limits. Oh, because it just sucks up all the... Because it sucks up everything, yeah. yeah. So if you actually want to know the real city limits of Austin, it's, it takes a bit it's of work. It's on page eight. Yeah. 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 So you, you go down the river, right? And if anyone's been east of Austin, whether you drive out MLK, which becomes this uh, farm-to-market road, and it's it's down there off the side of the highway, as you saw in, in the Giga Rodeo, Cyber Rodeo, rather, event, which anyone can go and watch, I highly recommend. There's, like, all kinds of compressed or shorter versions of it you can see as well with great bits. One of the, the really famous infographics that came out of that was where they turned the Giga Factory on its side, right. put it in the Austin skyline, and then compared it to the world's tallest buildings. And the uh, Dubai's, uh, was it the Burj, uh, Burj Al Khalifa? Yeah. 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 And then there was the Eiffel Tower, yeah, sort of as this very diminutive. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's fascinating to me on all kinds of levels, you know, largely as a sort of visual scholar. I'm like, okay, what is this doing, right? What is this claim to scale? And scale is such a fascinating question for everyone in Austin right now. If you've lived yeah. in Austin, you know, I've been here, what, 12, 13 years. If you've lived here even five years, the, the, the feelings of scale and shift and change are remarkable. I was just driving down airport with a, my son, and right on airport in Springdale, you've got the Springdale General going up, which has offices, which some people are speculating might house some of Tesla. Okay. Um, so we're not sure about that. We're trying to figure that out. Don't know. But right next to it, there's a, an old gym and an auto body shop or something like that, which used to look huge. It used to look huge. And now it's the most diminutive, tiny little thing you could imagine. So scale for me, you know, this plays into all kinds of different places, partly Elon's rhetoric, but the size and scale of the factory itself, which he claims to be the largest factory in the world. Apparently it's not. I think that there's... Uh, I mean, Wikipedia says there's a Boeing factory yeah. out in yeah, Washington exactly, that they list yeah. as the number one. Right. So, I mean, but, but the, you know, the idea of being able to build that, first of all, you know, it gets this property. The property is in Austin, which is this sort of libertarian tech hub, this emerging Silicon Hills. It's next to the airport. It's got size to build out east, which hasn't been massively overvalued quite in the ways that West Tex West Austin has in Hill Country and stuff. So, you know, I think they were able to get it at that time. It sort of slipped between the cracks of oversight. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's cited there. Wow. So I, I, that that kind of brings me to something that I, that I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is... You know, you use the expression tech bros and, and you talked about crypto and one of the enormous changes in Austin or, or maybe in some respects the driving change of Austin has been the rise of the tech industry over the last, you know, I don't know what it is, 20, 30 years. And I guess I'm curious about how you guys have both sort of personally and intellectually experienced the shift in Austin I'm less interested in kind of the numbers of how, you know, the rise of the tech industry and, and who's employing who than a more kind of subjective or sort of qualitative perspective on how it's changed the feel and the vibe of Austin. And I will say just to give you an example, you know, and I don't know the like sort of the data on this, but I'm just looking. I live in a neighborhood in Austin that's relatively affluent. When we moved there about 11, 12 years ago, it was affluent, but it was affluent in a way that was like architects professors, UT professors, that kind of thing. My wife's a therapist, therapists, people, and, and, and not to like sort of differentiate myself from anybody else, but people who had a little bit of sort of cultural cachet. Let's, let's put it in a kind of non-judgmental way, one way or the other. People who had a certain amount of cultural intellectual cachet lived in the neighborhood. And I have watched as the real estate prices of, in Austin have increased and essentially has has driven out that sort of tranche of people and that everybody who's moving in is tech and finance. And that changes the look of the neighborhood. It also look, changes the feel of the neighborhood. And I feel like if you have lived in Austin for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, what you have seen has been a shift in the vibe of Austin from a place that had a lot of cultural cachet, but not an enormous amount of money. I mean, it had money, but not like Houston money or Dallas money or something like that to a place that had real bona fide money and where the people who were setting the tone for the culture were the people with that money. And that's just a different type of person. And I'm curious for you guys, both personally and just sort of intellectually, 
has Austin become a sort of a home to the tech bro in a way that it was once a home to the professor or the musician or the hippie or something like that? I think Randy's been tracking this for much longer than I have. And so I'm actually, I'd love hearing you both tell stories about when you were here in the 80s and also the ways in which your own scholarship and your work with the End of Austin website has done that really, really critical work of, of paying attention to that, Randy. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, for listeners, the End of Austin is a website that's been active. I run it with my students as a kind of digital humanities project for the last 10 years to track the changes in the Austin kind of cultural landscape. And a lot of it's about gentrification and you know, and some of the work we do for this project could end up there because Tesla's having such probably will have an enormous impact on Austin. To your question, though, the tech bros and what it means for Austin, it's hard for somebody like me. I come from the slacker days of Austin, the affordability, the bohemian quality, and an organic quality. Yeah, there were problems in Austin in the 80s and early 90s, but it was kind of its own thing. And I found it to be you know, very compelling. That is no longer true. I mean, it's really a transplant culture now. Like a lot of the hip new restaurants are owned by people from the coasts or Denver or whatever. And then, you know, Elon's prime example of a transplant who's coming here, I think, you know, for the reasons that Craig articulated and has to do with like labor regulations being lower here than say in California, some things about acquiring land and cost and state tax on income tax and things like that. But also I think, you know, Elon could have found those things in Oklahoma City. He didn't go there. And so I think there's this this thing that's very important to him personally about the cool factor Mm. and the Austin brand being quote cool. And what that means for somebody like him is probably very different than what it means for me. But I think we definitely have reached this moment of a kind of inorganic Austin, that we're just another spot on the turbo capitalist pipeline. Craig was talking this morning, we had breakfast together about it. Hydroponics was your example. Okay, so if you think of, you know, what, what do we think of when we think of rootedness, right? You know, if, you, if you're rooted in a place, you know, you put your roots in and, you know, there's all kinds of interesting metaphors about, you know, place and soil and land and earth. It's also very tied up in settler colonialism, which is definitely very big part of some of the things I'm thinking about with this. But specifically, the idea of hydroponics is, you know, the ideal of American capitalism is the labor force that's completely unrooted, right? It's mobile, it's disorganized, literally disorganized. It can't organize because it's constantly moving. So the hydroponic model is is one where, you know, you, your roots are rooted into something that is completely manufactured and sustained or not sustained. Any idiocracy, what's the the pop that they... they oh, Brondo. <laughs> Brondo. Brondo has what plants need. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you give them a bit of Brondo, you give them a bit of Roundup, I don't know. Uh, but, I mean, the point is, you know, it's tech workers come, they're young, they're idealistic, they're working these great jobs, they can afford yeah. to, you know, buy a place for $600,000 for a one-room condo or, you know, to pay the $2,000 a month for a studio apartment and participate in what has become a reproduction of an ideal of of what was once weird, what was once, you know, fostered this this kind of place. I mean, all of that needs to be questioned. It is really well questioned, right? Like, was it really ever weird? What did that weirdness look like? What right. was the quality of it? And most importantly, who got to participate in it, right? Um, and all of those things are sort of central to this. But when we're thinking about the mobility of tech bros, the location of Tesla here, the history of Austin, Austin's weirdness, its different characters... I mean, I still, I love this city. It's a lot of fun and there's lots going on. It feels cool. But, you know, I've been here 13 years. I'm from Canada. You know, I've got a very different sort of relationship with this place. So the degree of a sense of loss and displacement for me is not there. I live in East Austin and I'm, I'm pretty active in the community organization where we're fighting for really basic things like the right to return, you know, where people are, are displaced and then whenever sort of a little bit of affordable housing comes online that we can actually get people back into their neighborhoods. And who I were think, actually there. Who were there before, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that That's notion is anathema yeah. to modern tech and industry, right? This idea that you have a right to have a neighborhood that you live in, that your kids could return to, that doesn't work. And people don't want that, and they're starting to create a world that people don't want that. I think there's a layer of corporate wealth that doesn't want that. Yeah. So I, I, I'm sort of torn about which direction to go in. One is... We, we actually have mentioned a few m- movies that have sort of Austin 
ties even like Idiocracy is a Mike Judge movie, right? And mm-hmm. he has a relationship. Is he from Austin or he was here for a while? I think he's from Dallas, but he's, yeah, he's been, I think he lives out west here. And then you mentioned Slacker, which has Linklater, and yeah. he lives here. And then you could bring in Days and Confused. Mm-hmm. And there's all these sort of very like ultra Austin cultural productions that kind of have a relationship to, I think, what we would say was old Austin, you know, in, in direct or indirect ways. So I'm interested in, I'm going to sort of put two things on the table. Like I'm interested in what kind of culture, movies, art, literature, television would represent Austin now or does represent Austin now relative to these older ones like Slacker, I think is kind of, you know, is the is the emblematic old Austin movie in a lot of ways. That's one direction. I guess the other one is kind of the stuff you were talking about, Craig, about the, you know, the kind of evolution of Austin into this sort of no place or every place and the ways in which that's amenable to a lot of to money, to capital. And I guess I'm curious about what the alternative is, because I totally hear what you're saying. And there's ways in which it's troubling that Austin is becoming, you know, just kind of feeling more and more like Northern California or, you know, Denver or whatever else. And at the same time, as you said, I am living in the city which is experiencing enormous growth. There's jobs. Tesla's bringing a lot of jobs. The unemployment rate is low. There's a lot of energy. I grew up in a city in the Northeast that was like a post-industrial city that was just my entire childhood was just stagnation and decline. So there's a part of very visceral part of me that comes to a place like Austin and is like everybody's complaining about the growth in a variety of ways. And I'm like, well, why don't you try living somewhere where the opposite thing is happening and then come back to me about the problems with growth? So I, I both hear your sort of critique, but I also am trying to envision what is what is an alternative plan where we're open to growth and jobs and wealth, but it could happen in a way that produced more of that kind of more rootedness, more organic sort of sense, more production of like authentic culture, the things that we want, and a more democratic sort of participation in the wealth. So I, I don't know, take either of those. Like <laughs> what is the culture that Austin is producing that's kind of emblematic of or symptomatic of where Austin is right now? Or what would it be? That's one question. A totally different question is what's an alternative path for Austin that's not rejecting the dynamism, but is mitigating some of those things that we have issues with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... If we've gone from this slacker as some sort of idealized version of 80s bohemian Austin where, you know, we basically had this university with 50,000 students producing a lot of people who liked being in Austin. Austin didn't have great jobs to offer back then, and so they ended up being underemployed and working at Whole Foods so that they, you know, making smoothies and stuff so they could play in their band. And living cheaply. And they're living for two, $300 a month. And this is like 1990 or so. And that, and my daughter's kind of that kind of person now, age 21 almost, and playing in a band. And it's just very different. You know, they, to live on campus, the paper today said it's about 13, almost $13,000 just for your dorm room. You know, apartments are getting close to $2,000 a month. And that's pushing out a lot of people who want to do more creative or just sort of, you know, I don't So when you think about growth, I think the thing about the project that we're doing with Tesla is not rejecting the notion that, you know, like there's going to be good benefits from this growth, but saying, well, what if... What if we don't just accept Tesla rhetoric as face on its face value and look at the holistic picture of Tesla over time? That does include the cultural stuff that Elon's doing. Because Elon wants to come here and, and glom on, it seems like, to the cool of, you know, Willie Nelson, Ann Richards, <laughs> Slacker, Austin, which is the mythology. But, you know, he's also tweeting this transphobic stuff. He's challenging... Fauci, he's he's you know kind of hysterical about vaccines sometimes, and in this way that's really implausible. And you know he definitely has some some you know I saw him at the World Cup standing there with Jared Kushner drinking wine. I guess you're the only people <laughs> in the World Cup stadium could drink wine. I, I worry that if we were slacker, we're becoming office space. You know, Mike Judge has this really a uh, very sharp sense of like the tech world. He did Silicon Valley, yeah. But you know, office space is this like banal landscape, geography of nowhere. So, For what it's worth, and you feel free to disagree, Austin always, has always been ugly to me. <laughs> I'm not old, old Austin. I'm 16 years. I have never in my 16 years thought of Austin as an attractive city, but it was a different energy. It, it was depend- a different vibe. It, yeah, I mean, it depends what you like. depends yeah. how you travel and where you travel. You know, I, I'm on my bike all the time, and yeah. I, I'm like, 
love it. I've got these great bike routes. I know I know how to move through the city well. I know where to go places I like. I never have to be in a car if I don't want to be, all that kind of stuff. You know, as an ethnographer, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the cultures of complaint, you know, that, you, that you're kind of calling out a little bit. And then yeah. I think that's really interesting and fascinating. Yeah. And that creates these really interesting tensions as well in communities where you have new energy, new blood, and then old folks are like, well, there's nothing here. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing what it like it used to be. And it was like that when I got here 13 years ago. I'm sure when Randy was here in the 80s, it was like that to some degree as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe not quite as bad, but... So paying attention to the dominant narratives that start to emerge about, like, what this place is, what's possible here, that, I think, is really at the core of a lot of this kind of work, right? And that's work yet to be done. The fact is, you know, we still have this remarkable degree of homelessness in Austin, right? And, you know, people who are we're suddenly seeing because they're, you know, forced out of these bushes that they were living in, which are now cut down and being turned into, you know, a, a new bike route, for example, or whatever. And, you know, in fact, that for me is one of the big fascinations is, you know, what's this relationship with Del Valley to Austin? Yeah. This is one of the last places that you can still live in a tent on the edge of someone's property with 15 other people and be within like a 10, 15 minute drive of downtown, the capital city of a major, major state, yeah. right? So. That is a story that doesn't necessarily get told very well, partly because it becomes obscured by all kinds of narratives of either myth-building or narratives of uh, disappointment at, at sort of where we've come and where we're going. Maybe it's a story of The Last of Us, right? Which I don't know if you've seen that oh, that's new zombie sort of po- TV sort of dystopian show. dystopian kind of post, like yeah, zombie. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it opens in Austin. Oh, does it? Oh, I didn't even know and, that. Which actually, Calgary, Alberta is... It, Plays Austin, which is very funny for me <laughs> coming Austin from Alberta, movie, yeah, um, with with you know an Austin skyline, which you could sort of see from Red Bluff, I think, roughly if you like tried to triangulate it, right? So I'm I'm there for me is like an interesting dystopian version of of Austin, which doesn't really include Elon Musk and Tesla. You know, we might think other dystopian things like. Elysium, for example, is, is mm-hmm. a film that's you know not Texas, not Austin, but is also this idea of the ultra wealthy have left the earth; they're living in orbit, right. and all this kind of, and everyone's left in their you know the manufacturing plants of you know essentially environmental degradation that's more associated with class rather than race. Yep. So I'm curious, and I and I'm, I kind of want to bring this back around to at the end to the cyber rodeo and Elon Musk, and have our sort of Elon Musk a thon. But I'm curious from both of you, just like one or two moments that sort of like contemporary moments that kind of capture something about Austin. I mean, Randy, you mentioned the one with this crazy like Musk, goat, Jeff Koons, weird (laughs) thing. You know, this is this is a boring one. But I was thinking as we were talking about office space and Anatech, you know, for me, you do see popping up all over Austin. And I'm sure people in, you know, San Jose would have the same experience, like these buildings or these companies with these hilarious names like these just sort of, you know, that came out of like the chat GPT tech name, you know, generator or in some cases like three to five story condo name generator. There's one that drives me up a wall, which is it's Octane, but it's A-U-C-T-A-N-E. <laughs> oh, no, that's too It's bad. like, oct- I assume it's pronounced Octane, and it drives, <laughs> just, just drives me up a wall. I mean, I would start architecturally and think about, you know, this this word super talls that, you know, we've seen in New York and Shanghai, these kind of like needle-shaped buildings that are really for people with pretty much infinite wealth to have quiet in the midst of a city on the 82nd floor, even if it means that the water in their toilet sloshes around (laughs) and they get seasick. Um, (laughs) We have super talls in Austin that are under construction. And those are, you know, it's like the antithesis of affordable housing. This project is not don't Tesla my Austin because whatever Austin was, is pretty was gone before it's gone. Tesla. It's pretty yeah. mythic, and there. And Craig is right. There is this eternal lament in Austin of it was great <laughs> until five minutes before you <laughs> got that's here. Right. Whenever that's right. you got here, that's right. And but something has shifted enough that you know Texas Monthly has always been fairly Austin friendly, based here, of course. And you know if you see the Bum Steers Award. This oh, Austin won for, the bum was was named the bum steer, right? And the rhetoric was vicious. I mean, I was really they really were just like they've had it. it Austin has jumped the shark. It's just this place that's overhyped and overpriced, and tech bros run amok. 
according to the Texas Monthly yeah. narrative. And so, you know, we're just trying to track all these sorts of things and figure out how does, how does Tesla fit into it. And it really does feel, you know, like we're just like, you know, gnats trying to land on an aircraft carrier. It's so vast. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you know, the, the other day, I was, I was when I've been doing my Tesla orbital, you know, exploring around and stuff. I took Randy out uh, along the 973, and there's three little neighborhoods I was really fascinated by that are backing on to Tesla land, right? And, and they're, they're actually sandwiched in between 973 and 130, and then just east of, the, east of that is the big Tesla Gigafactory, even though they own the property on the other side. So the older neighborhoods, right, are you know, full of muscle dogs and, like, kids walking the streets. Yep. And, you know, this is, like, working-class households, lots of trucks. And, and you know, it's primarily those ones, anyway, seem mostly Latino. Um, then next to it, so that's called Garden Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got Green Grove. And then you've got Prado. And Prado's the new one. So we, we drive out of those in, into Prado. And everyone's got their dogs on leashes. It's got these, like, very nice little park spots with playgrounds with no kids in them, of course. But um, they're there. <laughs> they could be there. Right. There's very few vehicles on the street. You know, everyone's got, they're either in garages yeah. or they have fewer vehicles because you don't have, you know, these sort of large families living in a single so house. So it's one, is it one development? It's one development. It's one, it's one little neighborhood, one development next Prado to Prado is what? Is that a city in Spain? What's Prado? It's great. It's awesome. It's rich sounding. Yeah. It <laughs> right, doesn't right. matter what but you But is that what it literally is? Is it a, or no. I forget what it. Yeah, it, is it, it the museum? What's the big museum the in Spain? Is the yeah. Prado? So I'm sorry, I'm wondering. If it sort of echoes the the museum in Madrid, I think, and then Prada, I guess. I'm, I'm not saying yeah. all of this went into the creation of it. Yeah, no, no, I, I mean, absolutely. And, and mm-hmm. I, mean, I think these are these gestures that get pulled out of it, right? And then we go on the other side of the river into this other little neighborhood in Del Valle, and there's this like most amazing bit of vernacular architecture, which is a house the size of a couch with a small fire burning in front of it. You know, someone's presumably living there, or maybe it's the place where they want to get out of the house, they go out and hang out in the street. And that's like literally on the street. And this is literally across from the largest factory in the world owned by the richest man in the world. And that to me is just like such a story that is like both leading my fascination and driving my concern for paying attention to this and and paying attention to it in, in really careful ways that it deserves. That's fascinating. All right, so let's talk Cyber Rodeo. I have some thoughts, but I don't want to bias the discussion. You know, all I watched all the way through was Musk's keynote, and I kind of skimmed through the kind of preamble and then the the postamble and so on. But what do you guys, like what's culturally, intellectually, ethnographically interesting about the Cyber Rodeo event, which, as you said, Randy, you you wanted to try and get in. I actually tried to help you figure <laughs> that out, but that was a dead end. So you didn't get in. We're all watching it online. But as an online text, what do you make of it? Craig and I were talking about this morning about whether it was scripted or whether Musk was just speaking extemporaneously. It seemed the, like the latter, although he's wearing dark black Ray-Bans, so you can't see his eyes, and he's wearing a black T-shirt and a big black Stetson. So he's really milk in the whole Texas angle, um, seems to really enjoy that. He made a number of statements in there. I mean, for me, one of the most important things is what is the relationship between the rhetoric and the reality? Because, you know, Steve Wozniak, the genius behind Apple, because it certainly wasn't Steve Jobs in terms of technical side of things, says, you know, Tesla is constantly lying. And he said this quite recently. And um, so, you know, these grand promises of transformation, it's not enough to say we're going to make a slightly better car, we're going to make a slightly better robot, we're going to make a slightly better rocket. Everything has to be pitched as if, you know, the Messiah has arrived (laughs) with the product that will transform humanity forever. And he really, that's what shocked me about that rhetoric. And even the Gigafactory, it's not enough to say it's a factory. It's got to have its own name, Gigafactory. And it's got to have this slogan that he attaches to it, which is the factory is the product, which I've been trying to figure out. (laughs) I I pondered that for a few minutes and I was like, I don't really care. Yeah, it's it's not easy to figure out. I think it has something to do with like the pliability, adaptability of the factory as a kind of maker space. Um, writ large and so that this thing can be you know it, it can produce all sorts of things ultimately and so he's in the producing things business not the car business was the point i think he was making but again it's such a grandiose way of describing improvements in logistics and man- manufacturing that it's kind of hard to 
you know, say, well, what's, what, wait, what is real here? And we probably would have a better idea of what is real if we could walk around on the site and talk to people. But my neighbor Elon doesn't seem to want me to come over with my little plate of cookies. <laughs> We're still a little bit sore about not getting an invitation. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I would know anything by being there other yeah. than being more sort of fascinated by the people who are walking around looking at it. The bluster obviously is super fascinating. There's clearly a lot of innovation going on. You know, you've got a massive amount of wealth and capital that's being brought to this. Everyone's feeling super bullish, as the boys say, about this project, right? And it seems that Musk, who, who we were talking earlier, Randy, and it seems like this kind of like intuitive con artist in a way, you know, someone who's really frankly believes the bluster or is like so deep in it can't really tell what's not and what isn't, but, you know, realizes that the bluster is what drives this, right? And so, you know, looking at that, you know, yeah, maybe it's not the biggest factor in the world, but, you know, close enough or maybe right. it will become so, right? Yeah. And you, you notice a lot of the language is, is it's we're going to be, yeah. we're about to be, this will be like that. And, you know, Optimus is going to change everything. That's actually the one that I laughed at when Optimus I Optimus is the it. robot, right? The kind of humanoid-like yeah. robot. Yeah, which, I mean, at the time I watched it, you know, didn't even register because there's so much going on. And then... Now watching it this time, they had the launch of Optimus, which all the the roboticists were like, "Well, it's interesting." I mean, they're they're like on par with what everyone else is doing, but yep. there's ab- absolutely nothing that's more transformative about this than any other sort of major sort of robotics project that's going on right now, right? So that's a little example of yeah. that. And so, you know, it's interesting looking at that and then just going through point by point, fact-checking, which, you know, everyone is doing, of course, <laughs> now, you know, paying a little bit more close attention to it. It's a remarkable feat of bringing together attention fascination of all kinds of different communities, whether they're like crypto interest communities, investors, and, you know, to me, this like sort of turbo capitalism, all these like this language we have for of of acceleration is all tied to this. And of course, we're missing, not of course, we are missing some of the big points about this, right? Which is all of the doubts and concerns that electric vehicles are actually going to save us and, and not make things actually significantly worse. And in fact, I think one of the things that we've been talking about recently is how dangerous that rhetoric has been to some of the things that we know will work in terms of fighting climate change, like public transportation, building livable cities, walkable cities, all of those things. Instead, you have this leaning into a future of elite transportation rather than public transportation, right? And a further commitment to the division of a world of people who have something in the 1% and other people who are living hardscrabble lives trying to get by. Yeah, I mean, he gets credit for leading Tesla in a period where it became, it, it, made, it made electric cars plausible for yeah. a lot of people. And, that, and then you get credit for that. But the electric car is a much more complicated thing, environmentally speaking, when you look at the cobalt mining and the lithium mining and et cetera. But what is his real commitment to this you know, transformation of, of humanity through the electric car that he seems to talk about sometimes? When you stop and you say, wait a second, you also run Hyperloop, which is a pretty flimsy notion to create a vacuum train from the Bay Area to L.A. that's never going to happen that was designed mostly to keep the state of California from having its own mm. high-speed rail alternatives. What does it mean that Elon doesn't like sitting in traffic, so his solution is the boring company, which claims to create (laughs) tunnels, which they've done nothing with. They have no tunneling expertise compared to some of the other big companies out there. They've made this little baby tunnel in Las Vegas that can only accept Teslas with a special driver that takes you from like one casino to some other walkway that you could you could walk it in the same time as this amazing tunnel. I think you save five minutes. You save five? Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a gift. Um, you know, so you look at that stuff and you're like, well, or even the Twitter purchase and you say, you got $44 billion to spare and you put it into Twitter, that would have solved enormous problems socially in this country had that been redirected. You know what this reminds me of, Randy, is, is some of my first work in Siberia. I was looking at the ways that Soviet subsidies made possible a certain sort of geography in, in the Siberian north. Yeah. And the Soviet government was like, look how well our reindeer herders are doing. We're able to fly them by helicopter <laughs> out to their reindeer. They can herd their reindeer, and then they can come back two weeks later after their shift, and they can watch the hockey game on TV in their little village, right? And... 
no one was asking the questions of like, how do you support that massive infrastructure? How do these subsidies work, right? And what are those subsidies taking away from when they're supporting that? I want to say one thing about the broadcast or the YouTube video of the Cyber Rodeo, which is it is striking to me, and and I you know this was at 22 minutes or so in the video that I watched, but it's kind of when Musk starts speaking. A few things were striking to me. One was there is actually a shot of a woman who's crying. It's just when when yes, Musk gets I, out I of the car. Shot. I love that shot. You know, and there's a there's this very <laughs> dramatic shot of this woman crying as though it's Elvis or yeah. something like that. The other one is. You know, there's such a buildup in the video. He comes out. He's in a he's in a Tesla. There's a Dr. Dre song playing. It's kind of this Texas Austin gangster maverick vibe. And then Elon Musk gets out of the car and starts talking. He's this kind of and he's got sure he's got the cowboy hat and the glasses, but he's this kind of dumpy looking guy who's super awkward, right? Like he actually is not Elvis. He's not Trump. Like he's actually this rather awkward guy who gives this very sort of awkward, not particularly charismatic speech. He's not a charismatic figure on stage, at least in that context. The other thing that I'm thinking about is to stand in for the, and I'm not a Musk fanboy, but I think much more than you guys are. I may be a sort of default American in the sense, putting aside the kind of crazy stuff of the last year, I think my perspective on Musk about a year ago was, yeah, he's a hype man. He's a little bit of a con man, but hasn't that always been the great entrepreneurs of like American capitalism, right? And this is my narrative, at least. And what they have produced for us, these great sort of con man entrepreneurs of American history is a great deal of like negative collateral, but also the kind of great cultural infrastructure and sort of urban infrastructure of America. So if you look at the story of like the growth of the cities that we now think of of places with a certain kind of rudeness like Chicago and New York and Boston, that if you went back in history to sort of the growth of those places, what you would probably find is similar kinds of figures who managed to, through a variety of means, kind of funnel wealth, often, you know, ill-gotten wealth, or if it was legal, it may have been legal, but profoundly immoral in terms of like displacing native peoples or the slave trade or things like that, but channeling massive amounts of wealth into the creation of sort of massive urban infrastructure, which then led to sort of cultural production. And so I guess, and this is kind of going back to a similar question I had for you earlier, Craig, but also for you, Randy, I think putting you guys on the spot who operate in a sort of culture of complaint space, which I think a lot of academia does, which is, okay, all of that is true. And yet I think there is a desire for, there is a desire in this country, in our culture, maybe in our, all cultures for a certain kind of greatness, a certain kind of scale and ambition and growth. And so I guess my question to you is either argue against that that's a kind of misplaced ambition and what we need to do is shift our whole orientation to a different one, or what is a vision of that kind of growth and dynamism that at least has less of the kind of negative collateral damage than we're, that we're seeing? What's a future of Austin that that has a space for big companies and crazy entrepreneurial figures like Musk, but some kind of infrastructure or norms that mitigate some of the damage. Can I just say something quick to that, Randy? And I, I think there's a slippage there, especially with academic research, that perceives critique as complaint. Yeah. And I think it's really, really critical to be careful with that and move with that with, with a great degree of concern which is the ways in which people who want to manipulate and silence critique transform critique into complaint. Yeah. Right? And so that's one thing I just want to be careful with as we, as we move through Point this. Point taken. Randy, go ahead. Yeah, I think there's always a utopian spark in the cultural criticism that I do that, yeah, I can see how it sounds like a negativity in a certain angle, but I'm like, we can do better than this. And I'm heartbroken at the thought that any city, but especially my city here in Austin, would have its future potentially tethered so much to one very mercurial individual, you know, that everything, we're banking everything on Space Karen, as they've been calling him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, you said your picture of him has shifted, it's, or yeah. implied has shifted last year. I think that's true for everyone who's looking at him, except for his most ardent fanboys. The fan culture around him is very intense, and 
maybe that's why I started with Elvis, because there is a certain kind of like rock star thing that he wants to cultivate. But I've never seen someone complicate their reputation publicly as quickly Mm -hmm. and as thoroughly as he has in the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I think Grimes is keeping him in check. When they split split up, things really went south. And he's also the first person in human history to lose $200 billion. And some of it's related to, to this mercurial you know, Twitter presence that that spooks investors. So that's my fear is just like, I'm not saying in any way that, you know, Elon doesn't have a right to be here and do whatever Tesla's doing. And I can see the positives, but I'm like, how about a dialogue with this community? How about a dialogue with the Mm -hmm. people of Del Valley? How about a dialogue even with the University of Texas and what we have to offer in terms of expertise rather than we just kind of blink during the pandemic, and then it was there. Yeah. We were suddenly the center of the Elon verse. So, I guess two things. One is, and these are connected. So, monorail. First of all, <laughs> <laughs> great Simpsons. If you want those for you, you can start singing if you want. Randy. Um, okay, so they build the monorail. Yeah, and then people build these like amazing markets underneath the failed monorail, <laughs> and then we celebrate the monorail, not the markets, not the things that people built. We can look at across America the ways in which public transportation was absolutely destroyed by the car and the cabals around that who wanted yeah. to rip up the tracks of the trams, yep. right? And so there's another example of you know that sort of tech entrepreneurialism that brought about something. People adapt. You know, We have cities full of millions of people who are doing creative, exciting, interesting things. As Randy said... Let's talk to people. What do they want? Yeah. How do they want to live? You know, let's go to Del Valley and really engage people in this question. Most people want a job. Most people want a job that's not going to poison them. Hopefully won't poison the river that their kids get taken down to to go look at frogs and snakes and birds and whatever, right? We have a failure in this society to actually pay attention to maintenance work. We celebrate entrepreneurs. We celebrate innovation, but we don't celebrate maintenance. And that's a hard built-in feature of capitalism or really a bug of capitalism, right? Uh, it's why we pay cleaners so little and or nurses so little, and we celebrate these other, you know, and there's histories of patriarchy there as well and all kinds of other things. But that's where I look for hope is like, let's pay attention to the people who are working on protecting the river, right? Yeah. Or who, you know, there's this amazing guy I know who's doing work on eels and trying to understand how the eels get up through the Gulf and, you know, they transform themselves and become different things and and they they navigate these river systems that we've built. So that's all still there and we just have to look at it. And the problem is we're all looking at cyber rodeo instead of paying attention to, you know, this local activist network that's like down on the river with 40 kids having a good time. Yeah, I mean, Elon tweeted (laughs) something about, you know, Vox Populi recently about whether he should run Twitter. And that was his way of saying, you know, I am just listening. I'm just transparent. I just listen to what the people say. And then, you know, it didn't come out the way he wanted. So he had another vote and another vote took him out the way he wanted. But if he's interested in what the people say, let let the people speak to him and, and have this dialogue that Craig's describing. Because certainly I understand the appeal for how he sells a vision of the future. Kara Swisher is probably the best person to talk to about Elon Musk. And she has a wonderful podcast with Scott Galloway, and they, last week or two, they, they talked about Kara's changing relationship with Elon. And she had this quote that I thought was really telling, that one of the angel investors in Silicon Valley said that Silicon Valley is filled with really big, powerful minds chasing really small ideas. And Elon's not that. You know, He's a very smart guy chasing the biggest fish yeah. in the ocean. And that's at, at a time when I think the future feels like it's foreclosed for a lot of Americans, somebody who comes along and says, no, no, it's going to be bright, it's, we're going to make it, it's going to be transformed, is super compelling. But think about the danger of that when you find out it's a con, right? When people are like, oh, actually, the electric car wasn't all it promised to the be. The self-driving cars are dangerous. The self-driving, you or know, the, we, we the, actually needed to invest in something else. Yeah. And suddenly there's, you know, we get yet again this more sort of distrust at these big ideas. Now, it may be that the work that Tesla's doing in innovating new modes of uh, industrial production, stuff like that, allows for the possibility of the emergence of better batteries, right? Better uh, electric vehicles that are, you know, fit that model that we actually need. And 
that's a possibility that we need to take very seriously. And and I think the culture of complaint to the to the where you're going with your question, I think can really blind us to that. And so how do we both maintain the critique yeah. that allows for the possibility of 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 some of these disruptive innovations to actually be good and useful, right? Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about and, and, and we've gone over time so we can we can wrap it up. I I'm, I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. Like you just said, Randy, you know, when people are thinking small, right, there's all these big brains chasing small ideas and somebody comes along and talks about space travel and, you know, a hyperloop and tunnels underground and electric self-driving cars, like that that's appealing, right? And so that's a kind of, you talked about the utopian imagination from your perspective, but that's a science fictional futuristic utopianism, right? And there is a desire for that, I think, maybe in people or in the populace or something like that. And so I'm wondering about, you know, this is this is for Austin, but this is, I mean, this is a podcast about the cities of Texas, right? And so this is a question for Fort Worth, for, you know, El Paso, for Dallas, for Houston, for Corpus, you know, for Lubbock, like we are in a period in Texas of, of enormous growth in most of those places, right? And so we're looking towards the future and another adjective to sort of add to or or put instead of like a culture of critique or what the sort of academic is this. I mean, there's a lot of overlap with just a left-wing perspective, right? A left-wing perspective on capitalism. And so what, if anything, is the left-wing perspective or the critical perspective on growth capitalism that that speaks to that kind of science fictional utopian that science fictional utopian desire for big things that will change the world and transform the world there is a desire amongst the populace for a vision of the texas future that is optimistic and futuristic and something like that and what does the left broadly or left academia have to say to that well, I mean, there's just so much there, right? I mean, you know, first of all, you know, what is the left anyway, yeah. right? I mean, what are these ideas? But, you know, of course, revolution, right? What, what was yeah. bigger than that, right? right? Like, let's overthrow the king. Right. Those are big ideas, right? And, you know, there's big ideas associated with anarchism in, in ways that are that are interesting, exciting. They're bubbling up and continue to bubble up in the city spaces. I think one of the things that emerges out of that for me and the way that you framed it is who is there to care about Texas, as Texas anymore, yeah. whatever we think that might be, you know, especially if we're thinking of this kind of transplant hydroponic model where people are only invested in Texas as Elon Musk is, as like these sort of movable symbols, right? Here's my cowboy hat. Here's my opening video of a horse running across a prairie with a bunch of Teslas, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it, it just it like, moves really into didn't pure, make sense, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it moves into pure simulation, right? Right, right yeah. And, you know, again, I, j- I just sort of lean back and say, what about maintenance, right? Well, how do we think about the care that it takes to, you know, run the city, right? Or to run Austin water or, you know, to keep people's houses clean. You know, there's like really basic stuff. And I think for me that the pushback against that is always like, let's think about sustainability. Growth is, is not possible. Hmm. We are killing ourselves through growth. I Yes, that was beautifully said, Craig, and I, I love this ethic of care, and I think behind everything I do as a scholar for 30 years now is my mom's family in East Texas, blue-collar people who are in logging and ranching, and I'm always thinking, you know, what is the relationship between whatever I'm studying and ordinary Texans who are not part of the super visible, you know, Twitterverse or whatever? What will this new form of manufacturing that the gigafactory represents and what Elon himself what will that what will be the ultimate impact on them and their lives if any and I, you know your question about like what alternatives do we have I, I mean I don't think in those terms because I'm very skeptical of grand narratives and big solutions but I do believe in revolutionary routines mm-hmm. as a as a new book describes it which is that Really, it's, it dovetails nicely with Craig said about a kind of ethic of care that revolutionary routines is this idea that it's in the small, the micro, it's the opposite of microaggressions. It's sort of like m- micro benefits that accrue over time when we're just paying attention in this like sympathetic way to the environment, to one another, to aesthetics in the city, et cetera, to animals in the city that, you know, run the gigafactory, et cetera. So that's where any progress, hopes and dreams I have 
rests is in something that seems pretty unspectacular. Elon is the triumph of the spectacular. Yeah. You know, he's the opposite in the spectrum, and that's what really sells for people. But it doesn't mean it's necessarily effective in the long run. Who is it? There's that famous quote, you know, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. You know that, <laughs> do you know that quote? I, you know, and, and, and I, I think I was thinking about it a lot last summer because I spent a bunch of time in Rhode Island in a small beach town in Rhode Island. And, and it's like I went from Austin, which is like 2023 or maybe 2027 or something like that to this small town that hasn't changed. That's 1987 or something like that. And I had this sort of acute sense of like where you live you have a sort of different subjective experience of like the present or the future. And I think, you know, to what you guys were saying, like, I think there's a case to be made that, you know, Austin is at the leading edge of changes that are coming to other places in Texas. So, right, if they're coming, if they have come for, and there's no they, right? I mean, the they is a just kind of distributed, non-coordinated, mostly, you know, cohort of, of people or forces but if they have come for Austin and it's Austinness, which we all agree that they have, <laughs> right? They're coming for Houston. They're coming for Fort Worth. They're coming for El Paso. They're coming for Corpus. They're coming for Dallas, right? And all of the and Austin had its own thing that was not its own mythos that was connected to, but very distinct from the the Texas mythos, right? Like the the cowboy hats, the cowboy boots, the riding on the horse, the rifles, right? But the people who laugh at Austin for kind of you know losing its keep Austin weird, like. They're coming for all those things also, right? All the sort of like more classical Texas concepts. Maybe, I mean, those have always been a little bit of a myth, right? You've always had the guy who grew up in Dallas, became a businessman in Dallas and went out with his cowboy hats and his Mm -hmm. cowboy boots and pretended to be a cowboy, right? But to the extent that that was rooted in something authentic, that may be dissipating too. So, I mean, is that a fair... Is it fair to say sort of in terms of Austin vis-a-vis Texas that a lot of the forces that we're seeing in the Gigafactory and and play out in the sort of shift in Austin culture are also eroding some of the kind of authentic or rooted cultures and traditions of the other parts of Texas as well? We're at the beginning of this project. That's a really profound question that you're asking, and Mm -hmm. we might have a way to answer that in a year or two. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we can say too much that's meaningful at this point, but... I mean, it's really helpful to hear you articulate it in that way. Kara Swisher, I go back to her, and she says Elon Musk is the id of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's the id of Texas. Mm -hmm. And the id is important. You know, it's very impulsive and creative and and disruptive. But we also want to have the superego of Texas. We want to have a sense of, you know, boundaries and restraint and wisdom. And so I think the project is a very modest attempt for us to kind of put it on the scale in the ways that we know how to do that and think about the ultimate impact on Austin and Texas generally. Last question. What is either what's your absolute favorite spot in Austin or what is your absolute favorite piece of Austin-produced culture or both? (laughs) So a couple years ago for the End of Austin project, an artist did what she called a hedonic map. And she interviewed people about where in the city did you have your most, you know, precious experiences. And it was the kind of map that any, like, hippie in Austin in the 60s probably would have recognized because all the high spots were around Barton Springs. (laughs) And if you go to Barton Springs in the morning, you know, any time of year, but it's just like a magical spot to be there. I absolutely love it to this day. Yeah, that's great. Uh, For me, it'd be Sahara Lounge, I think. On the east side, it's a remarkable space. Oh, I'm not sure if I've been there. I've seen it, but I don't. Yeah, check it out. It's, it's it's great. You know, aside from you know fire pit in the back, you know the music they bring together there is incredible. African night and Saturdays is great. The dancing, so it'd be that. It'd be you know maybe line dancing at the White Horse, which is also this you know multi generational group of people who are just there dancing, having fun. And then finally Vortex, which I think is the last little space, like holdout in East Austin of weirdness. There are so many people who who want to come to Austin now. When I travel somewhere that I think is really cool, they spend all the the locals in Oslo or the Bay Area are like, oh, you're in Austin. I want to go to Austin. And so there obviously is there something very compelling and appealing here. At the same time, if we don't figure out a healthy relationship to Tesla and some of these other forces, 
what we're going to have more and more of is this conversation of what's the next Austin that I hear yeah. all the time. Yeah, right. So many people are like, I've got it. Uh, I've had it with the traffic, the cost, the politics of the state. And they're looking for, you know, Chattanooga or Boise or something to be the next Austin in their lives or something, you know, even around Austin in the mm-hmm. Hill Country. I, yeah, I just don't want people to be like, you know, abandoning ship when something else is possible. Yeah, let's keep Austin the next Austin. Um, <laughs> yeah. Randy and Craig, thank you. This was great. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited about your project. And, you know, keep me in the loop when there's things to things to share. Yeah, um, will do. And it's just been great to have you. Great. Thanks so, a lot. Thank you fun. so much. This was an episode of ColaCast. If you liked the podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast platform. And also feel free to subscribe to Extra Credit, which is the Substack newsletter with which it's affiliated. Uh, That's also a good way of getting all the info on the new episodes. Thank you to Nick Worthen, who produced this episode, and to Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, or LATES, our ongoing partner in this endeavor. And thank you to you, the listener. Feel free to email me at oppenheimer at utexas.edu. That's O-P-P-E-N-H-E-I-M-E-R at utexas.edu with questions, comments, and complaints. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.